When you hear the cause of death for a group of people was human crush, that in itself gives you such a terrible visual, but it's nothing compared to what it really looks like when you see it. And these things have happened. They've happened at concerts where gates were opened and people come running in and people get trampled. Um, They've happened at football matches. It's, It's not that this is an unheard of thing. But the Hillsborough disaster was a incredibly horrific event that not only the was pointless it didn't have to happen had there been been appropriate crowd control and good uh, um, professional actions by the South Yorkshire police but in addition to that the events that occurred afterwards were also incredibly terrible um Police lying, blaming victims, telling stories that weren't true, and then passing that information to the media who published it and published these lies about them so that not only did you have people that were killed and people that were injured, but you had families that had to hear their loved ones' names and and reputations smeared by these people who were in charge. And they fought for a long time for justice. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so let me kind of back up and, and set the stage for you. So the FA Cup is is a really cool um, event uh, or competition. It, it, it's I think the best I could compare it to is like March Madness in the United States, where you have small clubs who are not normally, you know, like in the limelight and always getting a lot of attention, getting to compete, uh, as well as the bigger, more known clubs. And so it's, it's an exciting thing. It's a, it's a big, it's the oldest competition, I believe in, um, in, um, English football. And so it's exciting. And so there was a, this match that was coming up was a, a semifinal between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. And it was scheduled that day for three o'clock. Uh, it was in 19, again, 89. And at the time leading up to this disaster, um, a lot of English football stadiums had high steel fencing between the spectators and also uh, between them and the playing field, but also between them and other parts of the stadium. And it, it just kind of helped keep the crowd, you know, from each other to, to prevent any, any, you know, fights or whatever. And also they had the, the steel fencing between the spectators and the playing field or the pitch, uh, to keep people from being able to run out on the, on the pitch, either during a match or, or just before or after. Um, but this particular venue, which was in, uh, it's where Sheffield Wednesday plays and, um, in uh, Sheffield, South Yorkshire, England, this particular venue had had issues before. And there had been risk uh, assessments done in which they had indicated that it was a place that could um, have something bad happen. And in fact, in um, 1981, there was a semifinal play between Tottenham Hotspur and the Wolverhampton Wanderers and hundreds of um, spectators were permitted to enter this terrace that 
that could be safely accommodated, but it resulted in 38 injuries, including broken arms, legs, and ribs. And the police later said that they there's a real chance somebody could have died had they not taken swift action. Um, after that particular event, uh, they were not allowed to host an FA Cup semifinal for about six years. But in 1987, there was a quarterfinal there between Sheffield Wednesday and Coventry City, and there was serious overcrowding. It happened again during a semifinal between Coventry City and Leeds United at Hillsborough. Um, this was not a safe place. And on top of that, they had not really done anything to address it. And, and um, in nineteen. 19- 88, Liverpool and Nottingham Forest had met there, and the fans reported crushing at the Leppings Lane Inn. And that's significant. I'm going to talk more about Leppings Lane after a while, but uh, Liverpool even lodged a complaint before the match in 1989. And one supporter had written to the Football Association and said the whole area was packed solid to the point where it was impossible to move and where I and others around me felt considerable concern for safety, their personal safety. Now, crowd control is in the the the, the responsibility of, of the South Yorkshire police. And they had a chief superintendent who was pretty skilled. Brian Mole, I believe is his name. It could be pronounced Mole. It's M-O-L-E, but I think it's Mole. Uh, and he had supervised a lot of deployments there at the stadium, but he got in trouble. Well, actually, there's some shenanigans unrelated to football. Um where there was a um, um, hazing prank that four officers had played on on someone, and, and because of it, they had um, he was removed. And so, just before this match was coming, David, the the new chief superintendent was uh, David Ducking Duckinfield, was put in place now. Duckinfield had no experience in crowd control, and especially in one in something as big as an FA Cup semifinal. So that the setup was already kind of starting to get there. You have an unsafe stadium. You've got uh, an inexperienced person in charge. And as the opposing sides were were coming there, what they did is they, they had them separated and coming in where they wouldn't cross with one another. Um, hooliganism was a thing and it was real that there were these, if you don't know what hooliganism is, um, it basically is these gangs or, or similar to gangs that followed teams, uh, or clubs. And what they would do is like go to the, um, Matches the what like the away teams hooligans would go to the match, and they would usually tangle, fight, have street fights, uh, pretty violent, uh, with the hooligans from the um, home team. That doesn't, from what I understand, that's not happening as much now. That a lot of that has been kind of, you know, uh, uh, handled and taken care of. I, I, I don't live in England, so I haven't attended a match myself, but from what I've read, it sounds like a lot of the hooliganism that was common, especially in the seventies is, is not really that popular or it doesn't occur as much anymore. But, um, because they wanted to make sure that people didn't cross and, you know, whatever 
they did separate out the uh, the entrances where people would come in. Now, Nottingham Forest supporters were allocated uh, to the the east end of the stadium. Uh, had a combined capacity of of almost. Uh, 30,000, and they had 60 turnstiles spaced along two sides of the ground. The Liverpool supporters were allocated the north and west ends, that's where Leppings Lane is, um, holding about 24,000 fans, and there were 23 turnstiles from this narrow concourse. So you had fewer than, you had almost a, a third the number of turnstiles uh, for them to come in, but even more separated out the turnstiles, the first 10, provided access to about 9,700 seats. Another six provided access to about 4,400 seats. And then the last seven turnstiles provided access to 10,000 standing places in the lower tier of the West Stand. And this is where the, the issue was. Liverpool had more supporters, but Nottingham Forest was allocated a larger area and had you know more routes to get in and things seemed to be going well but um that wasn't really the case on the Liverpool side and so as the match started getting closer um as you were getting you know three o'clock is when it was scheduled the fans were gathering and uh it was described as kind of a carnival atmosphere um I've watched videos I've seen a couple of documentaries and the crowd looks excited and happy, but you don't see a lot of trouble. You don't see drunk people causing difficulties. They're they're they were a little boisterous, but you know they were excited about the the match. And but as things started to get bottlenecked on the Leppings Lane side, and it was again almost designed that way, um, people were anxious to get in, and so. What happened is David Duckenfield gave the order to open this exit gate to relieve the pressure so that more people could get in uh, to the match more quickly. And I have seen, I watched a video that showed kind of what the pins look like where you go in. And again, the the, the pins, if you keep in mind, you've got a, a basically it's it's an enclosure because you have the the high steel fencing that's in front to keep people from going out onto the pitch, but you also have it on each side to keep them from being able to cross over into other parts of the stadium. And so I watched the video where they kind of take you in and what it looks like. And as you walk through, there's an opening, there's a tunnel there that is clearly the tunnel to enter into this lower part of the stadium. Now, People could have also walked around the side, but it didn't look like an entrance. It looked to me like it was the backside that would probably end in a dead end. So you can see how most people went straight through that tunnel. I mean, you walk in the gate, you see a tunnel, it's the entrance into the stadium, you walk in. Well, what happened was you had 2,000 Liverpool fans enter this tunnel that was already packed. And as they're going in and they're pushing forward, they don't know that there are people up front that are being crushed against the fence. And so this crush developed and continued. And and people even said they were they had reached a point that some of them said that their feet weren't even on the ground. They were just kind of being carried along. And as this disaster unfolded, 
you know, uh, Duckinfield didn't know what to do. Uh, he's telling people that he started immediately saying that the gate was forced open by Liverpool fans, which was a lie. Um, and it just was unbelievable because what you saw, and I saw this with my own eyes on the, on, on the documentary is people being crushed to death. It was horrific. It was so sad to watch and, and, and hard to watch. I mean, people that I, I can't imagine, I just can't imagine what it must have been like for those people. 94 people died on that day. 766 people were injured. 97 people ended up dying as a result of this, some later on due to injuries that were sustained on that day. Um, Because of complete incompetence by the police and by the person in charge. By opening that gate and letting those people rush in, and again, they're just trying to get to the match. They just want to see their team play, and they're excited, and they're going forward, and and there's no way to back up. There's no way to get out, because once you're in, you've got people behind you pushing in. You have people behind them pushing in, none of them knowing that there's a stop and that people are being crushed. And when you watch the videos, it's, it's just so sad and to watch you see for example people in the upper part of the stands pulling people up into those stands the second tier getting them out you see people begging for their lives trying to you know in, in fact the match had started and that's probably what caused the big crush is because very early into the match one of the the uh, there was a shot that was uh, went off of the goal and of course the crowd reacted and cheered and people thought something was happening and they're trying to get in. And so it just, you know, the, the, the goalkeeper for Liverpool could tell something was wrong. He could hear people calling for help. And, um, you can even watch footage of the, of the match with the, with the, um, sportscasters. And even they were noticing something wasn't right over there. So finally, as fans were trying to climb the fence to escape the, the, the crush, um, they finally got part of it pulled open and, and fans were being pulled to safety, like I said, from above, but the intensity of the crush, it it finally broke the barriers on the terrace and people just kind of spilled out onto the pitch that were injured, that were traumatized. Um, there were people still trapped in the pens. They were packed so tightly that many of the victims died of what what is called compressive asphyxia while standing. It just was horrific. People were trying CPR. Watching the the documentary is hard because you're seeing people doing CPR. You see people laying around. Uh, uh, fans are tearing down advertising piece of, you know, like stuff to, to use as stretchers. And throughout this whole thing, um, the, the rescue, the, the ambulances, they were not able to get in. Um, and, and that was another problem that they had a terrible response to the, the, um, to the disaster itself. There were a total of 42 ambulances that arrived at the stadium, but out of those only two managed to make their way onto the pitch. 
A third one finally got onto the pitch uh, later, but the remaining 39 were, were not able to get in. And so they were having to try to run people out to these ambulances. Uh, uh, there was one man that, that I saw interviewed. He had two daughters and they put one on the ambulance. The other one was on the pitch and he had to make the decision who to go with. Does he get in the ambulance with one daughter and go along with her? Or does he leave the other one out, you know, dying? And sadly, they both died. It was just horrific. Uh, I, I, I know I'm using the word horrific a lot. I don't know what other u- words to use. It just, you know, it's it's one thing to watch like a movie where you see a death or whatever. But when you see it happening for real, it, it just... It's hard to watch. It's terrible to see. And knowing that all these people died with their loved ones, able to see the footage later. And I, just, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. But then things got worse. As I said, as this disaster unfolded, Duck and Field started working his story. And saying that the gate was forced open by rowdy Liverpool fans. They claimed that that they were drunk. They claimed that they didn't have tickets. They tried to blame it on hooliganism. Um, now, I'm telling you, I saw the, the videos. These people weren't wild. These people were not causing trouble. These were people that were just fans that wanted to see a match. They weren't there to do bad things. And, and there's later reports that, that I'll talk about a little bit, but they, um, there was no evidence that people didn't have tickets. That was a lie. There was no evidence that people went in, broke in anything like that. Um, just to give you an idea of the age ranges, 38 of the people that died were between the ages of 10 and 19, 38 of them under 20. 41 of them were between 20 and 29 years old, and another 12 were between 30 and 39. And then the last six were 40 and older. 10-year-olds being blamed for their own deaths. They started taking, they had kind of a makeshift um, morgue set up. And the officers started taking, doing blood tests on dead bodies to try to prove that maybe they were drunk or that they were on drugs, even on children. It was just sickening to see how the police reacted to this and how quickly they tried to turn this on the victims and blame those victims. In January of 1990, a judicial inquiry was held. And Lord Justice Taylor was in charge, and his report concluded that the failure to close off the tunnel was a, quote, blunder of the first magnitude, and that David Duckenfeld had, quote, failed to take effective control. And his final report recommended a move to where they had all seating stadiums instead of standing Um, you know, like the pins that they had. And that did lead to a ban on standing at football matches, um, eventually imposed on all the clubs in the top divisions. But nobody was held accountable. And that judicial inquiry at least 
pointed out where the mistakes were made. Oh, I skipped one of the most important parts. The Sun, which is a newspaper in the area, they decided to get the police story out early. They're, they're a, I said newspaper. I mean, it's basically a... I don't know. <laughs> I guess they're considered news, but they are... You know, it's. I would put them along the lines with the National Enquirer and, and, and other things like that. I wouldn't give them any credibility. And in fact, most people um, that are associated with Liverpool and especially fans that are familiar with this event won't even write the word sun. They put S apostrophe in, or they call it the scum. They came out with a headline, front page, in big words, the truth. And in it, they claimed that some fans were pickpocketing victims They claimed that fans were urinating on the, quote, brave cops. They said some fans were beating up people that were trying to save others. They just, I guess they bought the police story hook, line, and sinker. They did not do any checking of their facts. They did not. It was a scapegoat. It was sickening. And it just further victimized the family members who had to deal with this. It was so bad that um, I don't. I don't. If you can imagine your ten-year-old being killed in a crush because of the horrible management of the crowd by the police, and next thing you know, you read that your 10-year-old was part of a mob that was drunk and wild. They, they, the, the police took pictures around the stadium to try to, like if they saw beer cans or alcohol or anything, to try to show where it made it look like there was all these bad acts happening, all these bad things that were occurring. And it just was sick. It was disturbing. Now, Following the initial Taylor inquiry, um, they were criticized for a lot of things. He pointed out how policing broke down. They talked about the number, inadequate number of turnstiles at Leppings Lane, the poor quality of the crush barriers. I mean, pretty much everything that could have gone wrong did. Um, but he also concluded that the behavior of the Liverpool fans, including accusations of drunkenness, were secondary factors and said that the fans, um, he said that most fans were quote, not drunk, nor even the worst for drink. Um, and so he concluded that this formed an exacerbating factor, but that the police overestimated the elements of drunkenness in the crowd. Um, so that was it also the report said that there weren't fans attempting to gain entry without tickets or forged tickets or anything like that uh talked about the emergency response not going well um he also criticized the south yorkshire police because they were defensive and evasive um they 
did not give good statements. They were kind of got their story and stuck with it kind of deal. Uh, and it really had a, 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 you know, a very frustrating impact on the people that were involved and the people that were affected, and especially as families who just wanted justice. Now, in 1997, um, when the Labor Party came into office, um, a new investigation was ordered, and it was performed by Lord Justice Stuart Smith. Now, his appointment was not the most uh, popular, and in fact, he had a meeting with, with relatives of the Liverpool fans that were killed, and when he arrived, he flippantly said, have you got a few of your people, or are they like the Liverpool fans turning up at the last minute? Which was obviously a shot at these people who um, the police had said they were trying to rush in because they were running late. And they wanted to get into the, the stadium, and that's why they tore down the, the exit, or, or broke into the exit gate and everything. And it was really pretty fucked up that he would say something like that. But he did his, um, uh, he looked into it to see if there was any new evidence or anything. Uh, and so, for example, witness statements had been altered. And um, when he presented his report, he concluded that there was insufficient evidence for a new inquiry. And so nothing really happened. And the families, of course, were were very disappointed. Um, he did. He supported the coroner's assertion, and I forgot to mention that the the coroner had done a report and said that the cause of death, what that it was crushing. And one of the things about that is what, what the coroner determined when they were looking into this is they would not look at anything that occurred after three fifteen on that day, because they said by that time people were dead, and so there was not really a need to look further into what happened shortly after. And um, they called it an accidental death. And I think that's part of what really had the families up in arms is they felt like that somebody should charge. Well, it's not what I think. It's the truth. They felt like somebody should be charged because it wasn't just an accidental death. It was due to the actions of the police force. Um, But he basically, you know, backed up the coroner report and others that, and, and he would not allow any evidence after 315 to be admit, admitted. And so it just kind of sat. And because it sat, these families were still left with no answers and they were left with no ability to at least um, be heard and, and be recognized for what they were trying to do, which is to get some kind of, justice for the for the for their loved ones um and backing up a little because and again i apologize for going a little out of order this is so many things were happening but the um in august of 1990 that's the director of public prosecutions ruled out bringing any criminal charges against anybody associated with this and that was a huge blow to the families and then in march 1991 the original inquest into the deaths were the ones where, you know, the coroner said, well, the damage was done by 315, and there's nothing else to say. Um, now, I do want to point out in November of that year, Duck and Field, um, Duck and Field 
uh, medically retired from the police force with full pension. He had been suspended from duty for two years, and the police doctor diagnosed him with severe depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. So, jumping back forward, um, the families continued to try to get someone to look into this independently. And they really felt like it was important that this got a, a good you know, look that people, that the truth come out and, and they, they felt like that, you know, there had been a continual cover up and that every time that you had one particular inquiry or whatever, they seemed to, to kind of lean back on protecting others. And so there was finally an independent inquiry that came out. Um, it was done, I think, trying to find a date here to make sure that I give you good information. The Hillsborough Independent Panel. So on they were formed um, after there was a, another request to have this looked at, and, and the Bishop of Liverpool actually chaired it. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, they had, you know, a chief medical officer, criminology people, etc. Um, and on September 12th, 2012, that panel concluded that no Liverpool fans were responsible in any way for the disaster and that the main cause was a lack of police control, that crowd safety was compromised at every level, and that overcrowding issues had been recorded two years earlier. They concluded that up to 41 of the 96 people that died up to that date might have survived had the emergency services reactions and coordination been better, which means the 315 timeline really is, is, was just something arbitrary that the coroner made up. And the num- that number was based on some post-mortem examinations where they found victims who might have had heart, lung, or blood circulation function for some time after being removed from the crush. But because they were laid flat on their backs or they, they weren't in a recovery position, um, they had airway obstruction. The findings also concluded that 164 witness statements had been altered by the police. 116 of them, they removed or changed any negative comments about the South Yorkshire police and that they had performed these blood alcohol tests that I mentioned earlier on the victims. Some of them children, they ran computer checks to try to find anything negative about people that were involved so they could they could make it look like that maybe they were um, bad people and, and it would remove some of the sympathy and put blame. And, and this panel noted that despite being dismissed by the Taylor report, the idea that alcohol contributed was, you know, it had stayed. People believed it because they looked in the stupid news. They listened to, to people that were lying. And, you know, once you get that out there, once you see a newspaper with the splash, the truth, and has all these horrible things, it's hard to get that out of your head or not have that kind of stuck with you. So there was then an application in December 2012 for a second coroner's hearing. Um, they wanted another inquest. They wanted to get more information. Now, keep in mind, this is 2012. This is years after this occurred. And um, 
at this time that the inquest hearing started in 2014, um, the nine jurors were sent out to consider verdicts after hearing transcripts of the proceedings and evidence that was produced during the hearings uh, originally. And um, the jury returned a verdict of unlawful killing in respect to all 96 victims. Uh, The 97th victim had not yet died at this time. The Hillsborough Family Support Group was beside themselves because finally someone said this was an unlawful killing, not just a bunch of drunk people that crushed themselves and crushed other people. In fact, the, the, um, the, the chair of that support group, she had an 18-year-old son that was killed. And she said, let's be honest about this. People were against us. We had the media against us as well as the establishment. Everything was against us. The only people that weren't against us was our own city. That's why I'm so grateful to my city and so proud of my city. They always believed in us. And it it just it's amazing to me that from 1989 all the way up to 2016, they could not get people to admit what really happened. And even the 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 guy that that wrote the the truth front page for the Sun came back and said he was duped into publishing the story. His heart goes out to the fans, um, but he didn't accept any personal responsibility for the story. The families didn't accept that apology because what he said was, well, I was tricked, but he has a responsibility as a reporter to check his facts. And instead, he just bought everything that the police claimed that the story they started building almost from the moment this occurred in order to cover up for themselves. The There were some prosecutions that occurred in 2000. February 2000, a private prosecution was brought against Duckenfield, Duckenfield and another officer, um, arguing that it was foreseeable, they were grossly negligent. Um, that prosecution ended with uh, the, the other person, Bernard Murray, uh, was acquitted, and the jury was unable to reach a verdict in the case of Duckenfield. And the judge refused to uh, do a retrial. The police disciplinary charges were abandoned when Duckenfield retired. And then fast forward to June 2017, it was announced that six people were going to be charged with offenses in relation to the disaster. Duckenfield, who was in charge, faced 95 counts of manslaughter by gross negligence. He faced no charge in respect to the death of Tony Bland, who had died four years after the disaster. But the the other 95, he was was charged. Um, also, there was some other people that were uh, faced counts of misconduct in public office and uh, some other things, perverting the course of justice, uh, you know, for altering the police uh, officer statements. 68 police officer statements, by the way, were altered. And in August of 2017, all of those people except Duckenfield appeared and pleaded not guilty. Um, they were all bailed out. Duckenfield was not required to appear, um, but he they did rule in 2018, in June, that he was going to be prosecuted on manslaughter charges. Then it was announced in December of 2017 
that a police officer and uh, would not be prosecuted over allegations they fabricated a story. Oh, there was also a, a farrier uh, that they would they fabricated a story about a police horse being burned with cigarettes. That was a lie. Uh, they weren't charged, uh, even though there was enough evidence to charge them for perverting the course of justice. They weren't. Uh, back in again, back up to 2018, it was announced that all the charges against another one of the officers was being dropped due to insufficient evidence. Um, the death of two witnesses and contradictions in the evidence of the others were cited as part of the reason for the decision. The representatives of the 96 victims asked, said they would be asking for an independent review. Um, as trial preparation was beginning, Duck and Field pleaded not guilty. Um, a couple of other people also pleaded not guilty. And the, it finally went in March 2019, it was reported that Duckenfield would not be called to give evidence in his defense. And it was reported that the jury would be directed to find the other person, Mackerel, not guilty on the charge of, of contravening the stadium's uh, safety certificate due to lack of evidence. It's a lot of lack of evidence stuff in here. Um, the jury was not able to reach a verdict on Duckenfield. And so he would face a retrial. And in May 2021, all of the other the other three people of the six I originally mentioned were all found not guilty. They were found not guilty of perverting the course of justice by altering 68 officer statements, which is just crazy. Um, the leader of the House of Commons at that time called the lack of accountability the greatest scandal of British policing of our lifetimes. And it just is incredible to me, these families that kept fighting, kept asking for inquiries, finally got an independent one where they found that there were problems. They found that these things weren't true. They found that, that in fact, you know, these things had happened and then they finally got the verdict of, or the recognition that the deaths were caused by the, these bad acts, and yet nobody can be charged. Everybody kept getting off. And it just, I don't know. I don't know what to say, you know, even to this day. Um, and, and Duckenfield, I believe, has been exoner exonerated as well, by the way. Um, a jury said he was not guilty, which kind of left the world stunned, or at least the, the English world. And so that pretty much is what happened. And these, these families have been traumatized over and over. Because every time that they tried to hold someone accountable, something in the system got in the way. Something stopped it. Whether it was the cops lying and changing their stories and altering witness statements to political people who did not want to who appeared influenced by these decisions to the media smearing all these victims 
to make them look like that they deserved what they got. It just was deeply disturbing on all levels. And I believe that the Hillsboro disaster is one of the most horrific things that I've seen in terms of pure injustice um, on so many levels. And if you get a chance, I think there's a, a lot you can read about it. It's, it's, it's a, there's a, um, like I said, a documentary that is hard to watch, but I think people need to see it. I think people need to know what happened and not forget. And I hope that if anything, the things that occurred, although it feels hopeless, considering it happened in 1989 and we're still talking about the injustices, but I hope on some level it leads to us finding a way to hold people accountable, whether it be police officers, emergency respondents, um, the media, because the reality is it's, it's one of those things where once a narrative starts and the story starts getting out there, you can't put that cat back in the back. It's out. And it, I think, due to the sun and due to the initial statements the police made, that colored everything. And then by the time there was a willingness for people to come forward and recognize the truth, so many years had passed, there were, weren't as many witnesses, there was things missing, there were things altered, that it just made it almost impossible to get the truth. Or at least, maybe not get the truth, but to get justice. And so there's, that's the story. Um, another person died not too long ago, bringing the toll to 97. And I hope that people never forget what happened on that fateful day. And remember the families and the victims of this terrible, terrible tragedy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Observations from Life. For more information on the podcast, visit my website, obsfromlife.com. There you'll find links to other episodes, information about guests who have appeared on the show, social media links, and more. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to us continuing our journey together.